0: Hello and welcome to the Unpruned podcast. My name is Sarah Brown, and this is a series of garden organic interviews where we let our guests chat at length on a subject which is close to their heart. We call it the Unpruned episode because often the content is too interesting to press the edit button. Regular listeners will know that in the last episode, I met Frances Tophill, who spoke about her love of plants as well as the more private side of her TV gardening life. If you haven't already heard it, I urge you to. Just scroll back to find the May episode just before this one. A good part of my conversation with Frances was around rewilding. It's a current and popular concept, so I thought you might like to hear this discussion in full. She also talks about her recent bestseller called Rewild Your Garden and her other book, The First-Time Gardener, aimed for beginner gardeners. But before we start, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils, and balms. I love the way they call themselves the vitamin company with the organic heart. Their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health stores across the UK. So to find out more, visit viridiannutrition.com. That's Viridian with a V hyphen nutrition.com. Let's go straight to my chat with Francis and pick up where we left off. Francis, hello. Hello. At the risk of sounding gushing, I absolutely loved Rewild Your Garden. And I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about that book, because the the title says it all, how to bring a sense of nature and wildness and living with it in your garden.
1: It, it, It was a lovely book to write you know I, i'm i it's really lovely to hear you say that you in, enjoyed reading it um it, it was a bit of an education for me actually as, as a gardener i you know I, insects and wildlife is a, is an interest but it's not something i'm an expert in in any way shape or form so the research part of this was fascinating to me and the more i delved the more i was interested the more i really want to learn about this stuff so um
0: and the it whole was, concept of rewilding, as well, which is very much gathering momentum, isn't it? It's about absolutely. letting nature make the decisions instead of us imposing it upon her.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that we have a, a legacy, particularly in this country, of a very controlled method when it comes to horticulture. And it's been a long standing thing, you know, Capability Brown. And, and that kind of the smoothing over of huge vast swathes of the, of the landscape you know that we we take for granted now where actually they would have looked completely different hundreds of years ago. We have developed a culture of control when it comes to landscaping, uh, which is bizarre when you think about it you know nature is a force and and why would we want to step in and 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 stuff it but we do um and it's so second nature. We go out to any space, and the the first thing you do is sort of pull everything back, cut everything down. Look at what you're with. You're sort of left with, and you think, well, actually, why do we do that? Why, why can we not just allow things to do what they want to do a bit? And recognise them as being beautiful. And I, I've done that this year on my allotment. I just, obviously I grew things. Um, but in amongst that, I let a lot of the weeds grow and it looked beautiful. You know, that I couldn't have done it better myself if I'd planted things.
0: Without compromising your gardening principles and your garden still being productive.
1: So it is that kind of balance of, of getting what you need from your from your space, particularly if it's productive, but also allowing nature to do what it wants to do. But rewilding as a process is, is a, a really long-term, um, you know, it takes thousands of years. And I, I, I read actually a critique of rewilding as a concept by Monty Don, actually. Um, and he quoted a project that was started back in the 1970s and yes, It's obviously not worked immediately now, but it takes thousands of years. And this is stuff I learned about through my degree. You know, um, the building of landscapes is is a layered thing. You start with primary colonizers, which will usually be fairly invasive species, often of tree or things like bramble that will take over. Once they've then done their thing, you'll have smaller saplings that will then grow through. And gradually the whole structure will build up until in most places you'll have a woodland would be the natural final climax landscape, as it's called in ecology. Uh, And that takes thousands of years to build up with all of its climbers climbing up those trees and the sub layers, the shrub layers, the, the ground cover layers, and then the subterranean layers as well and all that mixed amazing relationships between the fungi and the bacteria beneath the soil, so it's a hugely long process, so we can't just sort of put something into action now, and then, in five, ten years' time, look at it and go oh, no, it's not worked you know we it needs to be a hundred or two hundred or three hundred years before we can even begin to see if it's working so rewilding as a concept in a garden may not be you know a particularly practical thing, um but I think a lot of people that have bigger spaces and especially public spaces like parks and things, there is scope. It's just a fascinating thing to be able to go, well, what can we do differently with the landscape, with a wider landscape?
0: I like the way in the book you're very practical in terms of you You have the three options. If you're looking at areas of your garden, you can either go down the complete rewilding route, which is basically just leave it, let the brambles happen. Then there's the kind of middle route and then there's the what you might call conventional route
1: rewilding as a concept in a garden may not be you know a particularly practical thing it, it's it's a huge network of which we're just a tiny part and the plants we grow are a big part but if we let other things naturally happen as well and build up that we don't even think about that we would normally think of as mess and um, if we allow that to be there then it it plays a huge role and in our gardens just having a little patch that we allow to be a little bit wild makes a huge enormous difference not just you know we think about weeds bringing in pollinators but actually it's more than that you know you have a little pile of stuff that spiders can live in or slow worms can live in or um, you know hedgehogs can come and nest in for the winter you know it, it it's it's a huge network of which we're just a tiny part and the plants we grow are a big part but if we let other things naturally happen as well and build up that we don't even think about that we would normally think of as mess um, if we allow that to be there then it's it plays a huge role,
0: and and it's rather nice because you can kind of duck and dive between them if you think of your growing area, however big or small it is. A little bit of light gardening, or I want my cabbages, and I want to be able to play football on the lawn.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's two things up there. And on the one hand, a garden is a practical space that you have, and you need it to work for you. You know, you can't just let the whole thing be brambles, even though it you know in two hundred years time it will be a beautiful little birch forest or whatever if you want to play football or you want to grow veg, you do need that space. So you have to approach it practically. And there's also another element, there is there is some debate, you know, is rewilding actually the best thing for wildlife? Or as people with our knowledge that we do have, can we tweak it and actually make it better? So that's why I wanted to include all those approaches. Um I think I probably can it's probably quite obvious from the book that the kind of conventional route is usually my least preferred option. You know, I I wouldn't advocate the application of masses of chemicals and fertilizers and sprays to control things and create a sterile environment. I I don't think that's the way that we should go as gardeners. But there may be times when the space that you have or what you want to do with it dictates that you sort of have to keep it as sterile as possible. But then, you know, if you can, say, rewild an area, if you know you have a certain butterfly in your area that's in decline and needs a certain species to to lay its eggs on, for example, then you can plant that species in your rewilded section and you've actually enhanced it. But it's not a true rewilded garden because you've intervened. So I think it's that, that balance, you know, that actually there is a debate whether we should just let nature do its thing or whether we should let nature do its thing a bit and then give it a helping hand when we can. Which so that's, is that's,
0: probably the best way. That's absolutely how the book stands at the moment. And that's why it makes it such joyous reading, because it does give you ideas of how you could possibly just make small changes. As you say, those little researches. What how can I help a frog come into my garden? How can I help a yeah. hedgehog? So there's a bit in the book, Francis, which I hope the listener will indulge me, but I want to read it out because it absolutely spoke to my heart. It's where you talk about feeding the ecosystem, and I think we're all beginning to understand what an ecosystem is. It's how nature supports itself with different systems of life. It says our gardens are a functional ecosystem with layers, webs of complicated processes and relationships, most of which we're totally unaware of, happening right under our noses and under our feet, a thriving, living, breathing habitat if we think of our gardens like this, not just as a room outside our house or a manicured space designed purely with aesthetics in mind, then we can begin to train ourselves to make the changes so badly needed by struggling wildlife. Now, I couldn't put it better. Um, And I I wondered if you give reasons why it would be good to rewild where possible.
1: Yeah, in the book, I've I've highlighted five reasons um, why I think rewilding is really Needed. So the first is to create a natural and unspoilt haven for wildlife. Um, you know, I think it's, it's no secret that wildlife is struggling. Uh, and the way that we've gardened historically has not helped many, many species. So giving them a helping hand wherever we can is is, is hugely needed. I think yeah, the last year or two, if nothing else, has made us feel that the impact human beings have on the earth is not always hugely helpful. And I know that I felt very responsible, and you look at the animals and the natural life forces and, and and plants as well i've included because i always find the frustration that in most wildlife books you, they never talk about the plants that are actually struggling as well and could do with a helping hand too so Absolutely. so many species that that need our help that wouldn't have needed our help if we hadn't destroyed their habitats in the first place so yeah that that's, that's the main reason is, is to help the wildlife wild species all over to to recover in their numbers so we have a, a better balance globally The next thing is to reduce chemical use. I think we as gardeners have been reliant on chemicals for a very long time. It's been automatic. I know when I trained both in my apprenticeship and my degree, it was sort of just a part of of it. You know, for my apprenticeship, I had to do my uh, PA1 and PA6, which is pesticide application. I think I've used it maybe three times when I've done garden maintenance work since, but but hardly at all and i and i now would argue i think if i was offered a job where that was a part of my role i would refuse to do it i you know i i I just don't believe that we should be applying chemicals to the ground um my allotment i i don't know this but i suspect has got some long-term chemical damage because i have a huge problem with horsetail and there are certain areas in my allotment where i grow something put a plant in the ground and it turns red immediately Mm. and when i eat Uh, certainly things like some of the herbs, I get an immediately bad tummy. And I think there is residual chemical in the ground where someone has tried to get rid of the horsetail with something probably pretty noxious. So I just, I I think we can't justify it anymore as gardeners to just throw chemicals around willy nilly.
0: If I could just come in there, I think it's a thing that a lot of people leap onto when they talk about organic gardening. They say, oh (laughs) yes, we don't use chemicals. But actually organic gardening is much more than that because if you Like you say, if you want to encourage nature, you want to encourage the ecosystem and the wildlife, you get so involved with doing that, it becomes obvious that you wouldn't use chemicals. And so it's not like not using chemicals is the first thing. It's actually your love of what's Mm -hmm. going on and witnessing what's happening in your growing area that makes you think, why would I want to use chemicals
1: absolutely that's it you're eating produce that's been doused in chemicals and that chemicals are a very blunt instrument you know you want to get rid of whitefly so you apply a pesticide but you're going to get rid of every single insect that's around and it becomes a barren landscape and actually we need pollinators um i don't think anybody out there would want to kill bees but if you apply pesticides you will be You know, that there is no way there's we haven't refined them enough to be able to target one species. And we I would argue we probably shouldn't anyway, because they're a valued part of that chain. The key is having as many insects as possible, a balance so that they can predate each other. And we're not having any one being too dominant.
0: So if you kill an aphid, you've killed a ladybird.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, next door who aren't using chemicals, won't have any ladybird larvae to eat their aphids and then they'll get overrun with aphids. You know, it, it's it's all a balance. So yeah, I think it's a very important thing that we all just question it. I, I, I'm not going to lecture people for using chemicals because there are times when you do, you know, if you're working as a garden maintenance person and there's a gravelly, gravelly area that's full of weeds, uh, you know, you only have half an hour to be there before you have to get onto your next job. And I understand because I've been there too. So I'm not going to lecture people and tell them not to. I'm just going to plant that question of saying maybe we should think about it, you know, maybe we should re- redress this.
0: You talked about cherishing undervalued plant species. I hope <laughs> that, tell me more. Uh, yeah,
1: this idea of, of basically weeds. <laughs> um <laughs> we not
0: plant it, by any other name.
1: <laughs> exactly. And, I, you know, there are there so, we seem, <laughs> we're quite a conflicted bunch, us gardeners. On the one hand, there is a huge re- resurgence in things like foraging, um going out and picking things from the roadsides and and making things with what you foraged and yet in our gardens we're like no that's a weed and actually some of these are really valuable species they're really valuable to wildlife they're really valuable to us they're really useful things like chickweed delicious Um, you know some of the stuff that we get taught as gardeners that this is bad it it seems quite arbitrary to me so it's just that kind of redressing rethinking what plants are how we can use them and maybe they're a bit better than we think (laughs) and beautiful actually I was going to say
0: finding beauty in the weed as well that golden dandelion you know the beginning Mm. in spring is just oh it it lifts the heart
1: there's a meadow just near my mum's house um, that uh, I walk in a lot and I have done since I was a child and the whole thing is filled with dandelions and there's a certain point they have sort of two flushes through the year and both of them when they go over and they turn into dandelion clocks and the sun's setting and this field is just filled with dandelion clocks there is nothing more beautiful i love it
0: ah oh, that's so true i can picture that absolutely picture it you then talk about balancing the ecosystem in the garden
1: yes yep and that's the whole holistic as you were talking about. Um, just now with what you read out it, it's it's not just about the plants it's not just about the wildlife it's about creating an entirely balanced environment that has water it provides everything that different species need because every species has different requirements and we're just thinking about the above and below ground ecosystem and just trying to create um, as unspoiled an ecosystem as we can but enhancing it with additions like water, for example, hedges um, and features that can actually really give a helping hand to different species.
0: And then your last one is close to all our hearts. It's protecting the planet's future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks for itself, really. We, We have an obligation to do something. And I think everyone is feeling quite frustrated that we aren't doing more, you know, and as individuals, what we can do is limited. But if we have gardens, then we have scope to make a big difference.
0: Fantastic. I'm going to also now touch on your other book, The First Time Gardener. Mm -hmm. If you're a beginner gardener, someone who's just, you know, bought a house and there's a garden behind it and you've, you've never really thought about gardening before. And certainly in the past year, we've had millions upon millions of people taking up gardening for the first time. I was interested to see how you approach it, because a lot of people think, do I actually have to design a garden? Can't I just go out and dig and grow things?
1: Yes. Um, and of course you can just go out and see what happens because that's how we learn but if you have a more a a bigger plan to start with I think it can be a much more rewarding experience I know I did that with my allotment you don't just start digging a bed you sort of sit there and they can plan where the beds are going to be and I you know maybe I like planning (laughs) but I think um I think it's a really nice thing to feel you know why you're doing what you're doing because I have a lot of people, especially people my age now, as we're getting a little bit older and more and more people my age are now starting gardening and ringing me and I have friends saying, oh God, what do I do with this? And people get really really stuck on the detail. My little sister's just got her first allotment and I get (laughs) texts every day now about this real fine detail about okay, I've got this, what am I gonna do? You kind of want to say step back and don't worry about that stuff yet. Just enjoy the process start doing it year on year things will build up and they get people get really worried I think that I think there's a lot of anxiety in gardening and I understand why because you feel out of control very quickly things grow without you giving them permission you plant something it looks great and then it suddenly starts growing and it starts you know and we we all I think there's a lot of a lot of worry that we're not doing it right Mm -hmm. and actually you know there is no right and wrong if you have an idea what you kind of want but if you stop and step back and think, what do I want my garden to do first and foremost? Because it's a space that should be, I think, functional in some way. And that may just be a place you can relax in, or it may be a place that provides for wildlife, or it may be a place that's productive. Um, Maybe really into herbs, you may be a, a herbal practitioner and want to grow as many medicinal herbs as you can. You may be a baker and want to grow as many edibles that you can put into your baking. You know, who, who knows? Whatever the reason for your garden to exist, that's where you start. And from there, you can build up the layers. But don't start with the final layer. Step back. (laughs) We've all done it.
0: Very sound advice. And I always find it difficult because actually what you fundamentally should do is start looking at your soil. Because we know the soil is the source of all life in the garden. But you say that to a beginner and they glaze over. Who wants to talk about brown stuff? Soil's just there. You know, it's just there. And that's a very tricky one to tackle, don't you think, right at the beginning?
1: yes although i do think more and more people are getting into that the amount of people who co- who who speak to me now about no dig i've had so many people in the last year who have got into it saying they've just got the space what are they gonna do they decided to go no dig should i get this should i use cardboard should i use and they really that that seems to be the focus now which is amazing great for, for a lot of people to be doing that the soil is so important if you have an impoverished soil there will be things that you just can't grow Similarly, if you have an acid soil or a very i grew up in very chalky areas, so it's very alkaline so i I could never grow rhododendrons or camellias, and you know um blueberries on my allotment just die There are things that you just can't grow, and if you don't understand how that soil works you'll you'll always be battling uphill instinctively and because that's what we're taught, go into a new space and we start digging that you know that's just what people do and and I do think the snow dig movement is growing, and I think it's really great, you know the the understanding that the relationships that go on in the soil are as complicated as the ones that go on above the soil and we don't really understand them all yet um and I know there are lots of people like Wisley are doing big trials into dig versus no dig their students all get um a plot every year half of it is a dig plot and half of it is no dig and has been no dig for the last four years or however long since they started doing this this program and I went and saw them last year i I've may maybe the year before, because last year's gone by in a blur, it probably was the year before. And the no dig side from what I could see in the middle of summer was doing hugely better than the side that had been dug. So there there was a lot of, you know, the soil, it's a bit like rewilding your soil. It knows the soil knows what it needs to do. And if you allow that process to happen naturally, without interrupting with a huge spade, that can work really well. And you can still improve your soil by adding mulches and composts and manure to the surface and allow all the microbes and the worms and the things within the soil to incorporate it in the right way.
0: It's so like your personal gut system, isn't it? We all know that we want to eat food because that feeds us and nourishes us. But actually, if you work out what sort of food would feed you better and would feed the biome in the gut, and these are very trendy words I'm using now, but the biome in the (laughs) soil and the biome in the gut, they're all exciting areas of exploration now because there is all that life in the the soil that's actually providing the nutrition for the plant roots to take up and to help the plant grow and to flower and that very very basic understanding you don't have to be a soil scientist what's the life in the soil is feeding the roots which are feeding the plant
1: absolutely and you mentioned earlier on the um the fungus within the soil the fungi and the bacteria are things we're just beginning to explore we don't know for sure what happens but um there is There is research to say that fungus and mycelium, particularly in forests, connects plants, but actually communicates within plants as well. And they're just they're just realizing that there may be elements that the fungus enables nutrient uptake through the roots of the plants, allows plants to find out if there's a problem somewhere else to potentially transport things around they don't really understand how that works but also to be able to isolate if there is a, a pathogen attacking a certain tree then they've they've discovered that there are what well, people are, are arguing that they can shut off the communications to that tree allow that tree to die by their sort of protecting all the rest of the forest so there's a huge network of communication going on beneath the ground the trees are actually able to communicate with each other through the fungus that attaches to their roots, and we don't really understand how or why this happens, and we're only just beginning to sort of hit the tip of the iceberg about all of this stuff. And so, to just go in with diggers and forks and spades oh, feels a bit, a bit daunting. Now it's like, oh, I don't want to, don't want to interrupt this. You know, this, this is a new field of research which I find fascinating.
0: Yes, I do too, and I can't get enough reading about it. I, I because it's so fundamental. Tell me, Frances, how important is organic gardening to you?
1: I think it's very important. I think it's important in a wider sense as well. Yes, I like to grow in an organic way. I'm not soil certified. You know, I I haven't gone through all those processes. I just know I haven't added anything (laughs) that's, that's not organic. But in a wider sense, you know, the seeds that we buy, You know, I have I have a friend who's a a, she's a lovely woman and she's doing a wall garden, kitchen garden project. She started a couple of years ago and she's really, really organic. And she's always talking about this, like the seeds that she gets are organic. The compost that she buys is organic. It's a huge thing that we sort of underestimate. We can say, well, I'm organic because I don't add chemicals. But actually, then you go and buy a plant from a shop that's had chemicals where it's grown. And, you know, it's it's a big it's a bit like. You know, a web of life isn't it that we're just a small part of it and actually the whole thing really should be because if you're you're buying a seed you don't know where it's come from you don't know how it's been grown just any old seed you buy an organic seed that suddenly feels so much better because you know that it's been as sustainably produced as possible and I think it's just something that we all are going to have to think about more
0: I think you're absolutely right it's interesting isn't it how often we've used the word web the kind of interdependency, mm. the web of the soil life, the web of the, the ecosystems within the growing area. And, and we can also relate that to our own as human beings. We've now created a worldwide web, haven't we? So we can communicate with each other information and facts and, and everything else. All these webs that are happening, it's all about interconnectedness, isn't it?
1: I think gardening does that I think especially more and more this new way of gardening that I'm becoming more aware of and becoming really interested in is that with our hands physically in the soil we are connected to the earth you know physically connected and to have that perspective makes you realize that you are part of a web and it's not just you and now it's the future what you're doing now for the future, that's an inherent part of gardening. And also where we've come from in the past, is it's a hugely connected thing, just in your own personal little world to be connected to the ground, makes you feel connected to everything. And we're now, I think people are beginning to actually enact those connections, community. Gardening is hugely about community, whether it's just providing um, vegetables to your community, whether it's actually growing together and learning together and building those communities. I think as gardeners, we are becoming more and more aware of the web that we're part of and how important our role can be in that.
0: Frances, I'm going to ask you now, you you have a big television presence, which is lovely. We've all seen you on Gardener's World and also on Love Your Garden. And I wonder, is there a conflict between the personal Frances, who loves being in her garden with her hands in the soil, and this very public persona? Is that difficult to handle sometimes?
1: Yeah I, I, I do think it is. I'm, I'm not naturally a very gregarious person. I think a lot of gardeners aren't. I love people and I find them very fascinating but I'm really much more comfortable with plants. <laughs> um, it's it's a conflicted thing. I, I, it's, there are many ways in which it's a conflicted thing. So on the one hand I'm a gardener who's connected to the earth. On the other hand, I spend most of my time driving up and down the motorways in different places, different hotel every day, different team of people every day. It's really fascinating and I learn a lot, but it's, it's, it's quite a conflict. You know, the, the actual holding down of a gardening job becomes very, very hard when you're working in such a sporadic, chaotic way. So there's that conflict. But then there is also, as you say, the kind of the personal life versus the public life and I I'm quite private with with my personal life I don't kind of share a lot I've I've only very recently started doing social media at all but it's it's something that I am naturally shy away from the spotlight so I don't get too much of it you know I, I go out for dinner with Alan Ditchmarsh and he can't escape it and he's really great and he doesn't seem to mind but I think I would mind if I couldn't just go about my daily business without people always coming up to me. And so I think it's uh, one of those things where I'll have to tread slightly carefully and stop at some point and go, do you know what? This is enough because once it's tipped, (laughs) you you can't take it back. So, yeah, I, I do have that slight conflict, but I think I managed to keep my private life private enough that I have like my little secret self and people think they might know me on the screen but you know I have my own things separately that are just mine.
0: Francis I'm so grateful that you've spent time chatting for this podcast it's just been a delight talking to you thank you. Thank you
1: so much for having me it's been absolutely lovely.
0: And thank you for listening don't forget to subscribe to our organic gardening podcasts every month we have a new guest plus helpful tips and advice on how to grow the organic way. Bye for now. And our thanks again to Viridian Nutrition for sponsoring this episode and to Kevin MacLeod for the music.